Good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church on this eve of Christmas. And, and we are excited that you have come to, to share uh, in our Christmas celebrations with us here at Ivy Creek. And, and let me just say on behalf of my family and on behalf of the, the families of the staff here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church, we want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas from us. And we hope that you will truly enjoy this Christmas season celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you'll know that we've been looking at, at Christmas through the lens of the Old Testament. And, and we're going to continue that journey uh, this morning. We've looked at passages so far that point to the birth of our Savior and to the hope and to the comfort and to the peace that He came to provide, not only through His birth, but also through His death and His resurrection. And this morning we want to continue that, and so I'm going to ask if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, if you'll take them out, and let's turn to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, and then chapter 9, Isaiah 9. As you make your way to that, that passage, let me provide a public service announcement for you. It's Christmas Eve. If you haven't got the present that you needed to get for someone that you love, it's Christmas Eve, so you know you, you might want to take care of that. Uh, Sometimes we, we, might, we might need to be reminded of that. But the real public service announcement that I want to make for you this morning is this. In the, the, the activities that will happen, no doubt, later on today and tomorrow, as you're, unopen, as you're unwrapping and opening the gifts that you have. You know, and if you're like at my house, there's just there's paper goes everywhere and packing and all stuff goes everywhere. It's easy at that point to come through and just get everything up and throw it away, right? But here's the public service now. So make sure you don't throw the gift away with the paper. I was reading this week about how many cell phones get thrown away at Christmas time because they, they get just tossed in with the paper. And, and, and I read about a, a, a ring that a husband had bought for his wife. That, that got thrown away. And then, and then the other one that typically happens a lot is cash. You know, you open the card and the cash falls out and then it's in the paper and then it gets thrown away. So public service announcement for you, for your benefit, make sure before you throw away all of the, all of the, the, the stuff there, you make sure there's no gifts involved in it. You, you might be surprised how often that happens. In fact, uh, as terrible as that is to imagine, I was actually, I came across this story about a New York City garbage man named Nelson Molina. He retired after 34 years of doing that job as a garbage man in New York City. And what caught my attention about this story was the amount of treasures that Molina found through the years that had just simply been thrown away. Over 50,000 valuable items that he had collected from the garbage and had stored them. And so there, he, he, he found things certainly like cell phones and cash and rings, but he also talked about things like glass vases, silver candelabra, decorative clocks, electric guitars, even, even very valuable violins that had been just thrown away, tossed like garbage. He boasted of finding other expensive items, some that kind of got my attention, collectible things. There were Star Wars trinkets from when the original Star Wars came out in the late 70s. Very valuable items. He's found multiples of those. And then the other thing that he found, and this also interested me uh, particularly, was that he found uh, baseball signed by nearly every New York Yankee superstar ever. People had just tossed and thrown away. 
Speaking to a reporter and gesturing toward all of those items that were in that room, Melina said, everything here came from the trash. He said, if I didn't take it out of the garbage, all of it would be in a landfill. No doubt some of the things that Molina had retrieved through the years was thrown away accidentally. But others, he figures, he says, either these people didn't know the value of this stuff or they didn't want it. I couldn't help but think about Molina's comment when I came to the passage that I want to read for you this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. And the reason that his, his comment really resonated with me was because this veteran New York City garbage man seemingly, he had this ability to see something of value amidst all of the trash and the garbage that surrounded it. And what I want you to know, quite frankly, that's exactly what Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 9. The context for Isaiah 9 is the, the previous chapters in Isaiah. And, and, and in fact, really, you come across, when you're reading particularly chapter 8, you come across what really is, could be described as a garbage dump. In fact, a reading of the, these chapters tell us that, that it, it, it alerts us to the crisis that was pervading the land of Israel at this time. The Jewish people have rebelled against God. They followed after idols. King Ahaz, who, who is the ruler over Judah, has, has disobeyed God and he has entered into an alliance with the pagan nation of Assyria against God's commands. And as a result, Isaiah is issuing a prophecy concerning God's judgment against Judah. And it's, it's Isaiah's prediction of Judah's ultimate defeat that serves as the very ugly backdrop of what we read here in Isaiah 9. In effect, Isaiah has declared that this once great nation will become a wilderness. His message is, is that of gloom and darkness and that it will spread across the land. But then right in the middle of that predicted chaos, right in the middle of that foretold calamity, Isaiah gives Israel a message of hope. Like a, like a diamond shining in the middle of a muddy road. Like a, a treasure that is sitting amongst all of the garbage and the refuse around it. So are Isaiah's words. So let's read them this morning. They're familiar, at least some of them will be. At Christmas time, we like to read from Isaiah 9. We like verse 2. We like verses 6 and 7. But I'm going to read all seven verses to you this morning. Beginning in verse 1, we hear the prophet Isaiah that says this. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. When at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterward, more heavily, oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us 
a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word that you give to us. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us to be able to understand it. And that it points us to Jesus Christ, our hope and our peace and our comfort and our joy. And I pray that this morning as we spend time focusing on your word, that, Lord, we would be able to, to block out all these distractions. Lord, many of us, when we get out of this place today, we're going to be running 100 miles an hour to this party and to this family engagement and to this thing over here. And, and Father, many of us may be already right now having to try to keep ourselves focused on your word. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would aid us in that endeavor. We might focus upon you, the true reason for this season, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Help us to do that this morning and that you would do good in us and through us as a result of it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In my introduction, I mentioned that muddy road. It's always an image that seems to come to my mind or the garbage dump. Israel had gotten herself into. If you want to see a clear and unvarnished picture of what that looks like, just back up to, to chapter 8. I just want to read the last verse of chapter 8 to you. I, I think it's important for the context. Chapter 8, verse 22 says this, Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Now, it doesn't really matter how you slice it. That's not a, that's not a fun thing to have to write. I'm sure Isaiah didn't enjoy having to write that. It's not, a, it's not a fun prediction. It's a dark and a very foreboding prediction of judgment that was going to fall and had already fallen upon Israel. And, and in fact, when we come to verse 1 of chapter 9, there's the assumption when Isaiah writes that that, that truth is, is already inevitable. It's already happening. But then you get the opening word of chapter 9, verse 1, and it's this word, nevertheless, or but, depending on what version you are reading. And what I want you to know is, is that word is incredibly important in this text because it's a conjunction that tells us that everything that comes after it is going to show a reversal of what had been taking place before it. This conjunction is kind of like a hinge word. A hinge that, that tells us like a door turns on a hinge so the story that Isaiah is going to tell turns on this word. Even though all the anguish and all the gloom and all the darkness that had been described in chapter 8 is still there in verse 1 of chapter 9, he tells us nevertheless there's going to come a change. And the change is what he describes in verses 3 through 5. Now I've already read those for you, but I just want to throw these, out th these words out there for you to go back and look at for yourself. In verse 1, what we see is the gloom that's there, but that gloom is turned into rejoicing in verse 3. Back in verse 1, you, you read of distress or anguish, but then in verse 3, you read of joy. 
In verse 1, you read of oppression taking place, but then that is turned into a broken yoke of verse 4. And then in verse 5, Isaiah describes how all of the, the warlike accessories of the invading armies, particularly he talks about the invading army's sandals and their blood-soaked cloaks, how all of that will ultimately be destroyed and burned, ushering in for Israel a time of peace. Now, certainly what we read, if you, if you take those realities of chapter 8 and verse 1 of chapter 9 and then look at what he's describing will be the reality in verses 3 through 5, you recognize that there's going to be a reversal of circumstances that takes place. And in fact, that's the first point that I want you to see this morning on your outline. If we're just looking at how we would outline this text, the first thing that I would say is that we see a reversal of circumstances. A reversal of circumstances. Now, if we consider that, how that comes about and what takes place, well, we might want to know well, what, what causes this reversal of circumstances to come about. It's a good question. It's the second point on your outline this morning. The second point is this. A reversal of circumstances it, it comes about because a light shines in the darkness. We see that in verse 2. A light shines in the darkness. You know, last week, if you were with us, we looked at Micah's prophecy concerning the birth of Christ particularly the birth of Christ in the town of Bethlehem, some 700 years before Jesus was actually born there. And what we discovered was in Micah chapter 5, there's a lot of contrasts that the prophet presents for us. And he presents those contrasts so that he can draw our attention to the, to the real nature of the gift of Jesus and the significance of his birth. Well, I want you to know there's some contrasts even here particularly in verse 2 of Isaiah 9. See if you can pick all, I mean, it's, it's really a simple one. Notice what he says, the people who walked in darkness, well, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You see, with the coming of Christ, it, it talks about a complete contrast from how things once were to how they're going to be. And the thing that causes that to take place is the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, the reason that I can say that is because Isaiah 9 verse 2 is a verse that many of us have heard probably most of our lives. And one of the reasons it's so familiar to us is for how many, re how many times in the New Testament the writers of the New Testament pick up on this verse and talk about Jesus as being the light that shines in the darkness. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 1 verse 79, Zechariah gives a prophecy concerning Jesus. And he says, when Jesus is born, he will be born to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. In John's gospel, the very first chapter, verses 4 and 5, John writes it this way, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, the apostle Paul writes concerning this. He said, it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And of course, we really can't dismiss probably the clearest uh, understanding of this in the New Testament. In John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what you see is that this prophecy that occurs all the way back here in Isaiah 9 results, and it is a prediction of the coming of one whom the New Testament and who Jesus himself declares is me. I am the light who has come to shine into the darkness. 
And what we realize is that when Jesus comes, he changes the gloom and the distress and the anguish and the oppression into joy and into gladness of heart. There's something interesting, though. Uh, there's something that I couldn't shake when I began reading through this this week and, and, and studying it over the last couple of weeks. And that is the way that Isaiah describes this. He describes this light that's going to come. And as I mentioned, when he writes this, when Isaiah writes this passage, he's writing it over 700 years before Jesus Christ would be born in Bethlehem. So he's writing about an event that will take place many hundreds of years later. And yet listen to how he describes the change that's going to happen. Two, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Upon them a light has shined. You notice what he didn't say? He didn't say they will see a great light and upon them a light will shine. He talks about it in the past tense. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. He doesn't say you will multiply and you will increase. He speaks of it in the past tense. Verse 4, you have broken the yoke of his burden, not you will break. Now, what's interesting to me is that when Isaiah writes about this coming child who will be born 700 plus years later after his, after his prophecy, he speaks of what is going to take place as if it were in the past tense. That's not uncommon for Old Testament prophets, by the way. It's, it's, it's something, it's a writing style that was somewhat common. It's called prophetic idiom. And its purpose is really to show that the promise that the Lord is revealing through the prophet is one that is absolutely sure and certain. In fact, I love what Ligon Duncan has, has said with regard to this particular passage in Isaiah 9. He says, The prophetic past tense is designed to assure the children of Israel that though their circumstances now are grim, and though their hope may be dim within their hearts, the fulfillment of God's promise of rescue to them is certain. That's the purpose of the past tense language here. And I want you to think, is that not a wonderful thought to consider? Is it not wonderful to consider the fact that, that as the prophet Isaiah wrote here on the direction of the Holy Spirit, that he spoke words of hope, joy, peace to the nation of Israel undergoing the judgment of God because of their sinful rebellion. And he tells them that a child would be born way off down in the future. That that promise was so certain that Isaiah could write of what he was going to do as if it was, had already taken place. That's the kind of assurance that God provides his children. Now, speaking of that child who was to be born, that's really what Isaiah takes up in verses 6 and 7. And he, and he writes to go on and to celebrate and to elaborate and to even give more information about this child. And he does it by telling us that the light that shines in the darkness in verse 2 is the same Christ child who's going to be born and who's going to have this kind of characteristics beginning in verses 6 and 7. And so notice the last point on your outline today. The light that shines in the darkness is also point number three, a king with four names. A king with four names. The first name that Isaiah gives is the name Wonderful Counselor. Now sometimes people separate those words. Even the New King James actually puts a comma there and says Wonderful Counselor as if it's two separate titles. But I, I'm of the mindset that Wonderful Counselor is actually a combined title for, for the Christ. And, and the reason I believe that is because wonderful is actually a descriptive word. 
It's a word that means astonishing. It's a word that means extraordinary. As Warren Wiersbe has written, he, he says that the word means that there will be nothing dull about Christ's reign. I like that. There will be nothing dull about the reign of Christ. It is a vivid word that is used in the Old Testament to describe God's acts, which humans really have a hard time being able to understand. Humans have a hard time being able to, 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 to recognize the, the magnitude of what God does. The word wonderful is what's used to describe that. And so we see uh, there's, there's, a, there's an understanding that, that when Christ comes, he's going to be wonderful in the perspective that there's not going to be anything dull about what he does and the things that he does are going to be hard for even humanity to understand. But then it tells us specifically what he will be. He's going to be a counselor. He's going to be an advisor. He's going to be someone who we might even say he's going to be an ideal ruler. And therefore, when we take this together, what we recognize is that Isaiah is telling us that the Christ who is yet to be born would be known as a perfect teacher, the ultimate counselor. And that really gives us insight into what he came to provide for us. You see, it tells us that his plans will not always be our plans. I'm going to go ahead and admit, God's plans are not always my plans. God sometimes works in ways opposite of the way that I would work if I were the one being able to write the story. You don't have to raise your hands. I'm raising them for both of us right now. God does things differently oftentimes. Let me give you an example. We looked at it last week. How many of us would bring the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to earth and have him born in poverty to paupers in a manger, in a feeding trough? in an out-of-the-way town that nobody really knew about. How many of us would, would, would write the story that way? How many of us would take that same child and allow him to grow and live a perfect life and then have him crucified on a cross in our place? You see, our way of writing the story and God's way of writing the story are different, but it's in that difference that it's highlighted for us just how what a wonderful counselor Jesus will actually be. That's God's plan, and the Lord Jesus carried out God's plan perfectly. Therefore, as the wonderful counselor, you and I can know that the Lord Jesus gives good and righteous and life-giving direction to his people. And as verse 2 says, he was born to bring light into the darkness, and therefore those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will instead walk in the blazing light of day. That's the first name wonderful counselor. The next name or the next title that Isaiah gives is the name Mighty God. In, in, in Hebrew, that is the word, the title El Gabor. And, and that means strong one. It means, it means powerful warrior. Consequently, this name is often used in the description of or in the context of military power. In other words, the Christ child is going to be the one who fights for his people. He is the one who is all-powerful. He is able to accomplish that which is good for his people. So if we think about it this way, we, we can think about it that, that, that the wonderful counselor it describes Jesus who is the one who makes plans, and as the mighty God, he is the one who makes those plans work. Now, if we consider that for just a moment, that carries serious implications for you and for me. If all the Lord's wonderful plans will be carried out with, with his infinite might, then you and I cannot remain neutral as it pertains to him. In fact, as one has put it, if Jesus is not God, then we are fools to worship him. 
But if he is, we're fools not to. Why? Because he's mighty God. He's El Gabor. He's the one who is strong to save. He's the one who comes to fight for his people. And his people are the ones that he comes to defeat sin and death and Satan. And he defeats for them and wins the battle for them because they are not able to win it for themselves. And so Jesus Christ has come to do for his people what his people cannot do for themselves. And he brings his will to pass by fighting for them and accomplishing their great salvation. The third name that Isaiah gives to the Christ child is everlasting father. Now that one may be just a little bit, it's kind of hard to understand on the first. Is he not the son of God? And now he's being described as, as the everlasting father. Is, is Isaiah getting his terminology kind of out of whack there? I mean, we might think that when we first look at that. And I would say to you, no. The term father that's used there is also a term that's used in reference to kings in the Old Testament. And, and if we think along those lines, it makes sense because a king was considered to be a spiritual and political father to his people. So in one respect, Isaiah is actually describing Jesus or giving him a title that highlights the fact that he will be an eternal ruler over his people. But I do think that the term father is, is appropriate as well because it, it tells us how Jesus will treat his children, his people. In other words, all that a good father is, Jesus is to his people. I'm a father of four. And, and as a father of four, I know what it's like to, to want to, to love my children and to provide for my children and to protect them and to, to guide them and to give them good gifts and to be able to help them as they mature and to, to do all of those kind of things. And listen, as the New Testament says, if I, being an earthly father who's full of sin and can't do the fathering job to the best of my ability even when I want to, and even when I do, it's not even the best job that could be done, but even there, if within me I have this desire to be a good father, how much more? Or will he be a better father? Because he's God. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. And he's the everlasting father. And it's the everlasting or the eternal nature of being a father that draws us even into another point. Because you see, even though I want to do all those things for my children, and even though I may be able in some respects by God's grace to accomplish some of those things for, for my children, I know one day I'm not going to be on the scene for my children. I have stood over the caskets of a number of people long enough to know that all of us in this room have a shelf life. But not Jesus. He's described as the eternal, everlasting Father. And what that points to is that His nature of loving care for His children never will it end. He existed before time began. He exists above time now. He will exist long after we have stopped counting years. He will always be there because He always has been and He always will be. And He is the eternal Father. He is one who is everlasting. He is not bound by time. And so therefore He acts like a ruler and like a father toward His people by tenderly leading them and lovingly caring for them. That leads then to the fourth title that Isaiah gives for him, and he calls him the Prince of Peace. Literally, in the Hebrew, that means he is the prince whose coming brings peace. 
In other words, this name, this title speaks of the effect of his coming. In fact, we might even say that this title is really the climax. It's the, it's the culmination of all the others. The title prince means the official one, the, the one in charge. It's the, it's the one who, who is commander. And then peace is the word shalom. And, and that word shalom really has the connotation of deliverance and salvation attached to it. And so Jesus really then when he's being described here, he is the official one. He is the commander who comes and brings deliverance and salvation to his people. He is the one who has come to bring peace. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us about him in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul gives this description of, 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 of Jerusalem, really, and, and, and the gates that are there in the temple, and, and, and the Gentiles could, could only go so far. And then the, the court of the women, only could, they could only go so far. And then you had to be a, a male in the Jewish society to get all the way into the, the other parts, but then the, the real inner part, the inner sanctum, could only be traveled there by the priests. And, and what Paul says is that God has come and he's broken down the walls of demarcation. He's broken down the walls of separation. And he, by his grace and his mercy, through his death, has brought all people from all corners of the globe to himself. And thus, Paul says, Christ himself is our peace. Then in verse 7 of Isaiah 9, we kind of get the expansion, the further explanation of who this Christ child will be and what his reign will look like. The eternality of the reign of Christ that, that, is, that is characterized by peace is emphasized by these words. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then further what it begins to tell us is that that reversal process that he put in place earlier is only going to be something that grows. As Danny Aiken has put it, when you, when you read, when you come away from verse 7, what you come away from is an understanding of this, is that hope will burst forth from hopelessness and it will continue to grow. And peace will burst forth from peacelessness and it will continue to grow. And justice will burst forth from where there was injustice and it will continue to grow throughout eternity, forever and ever, because the zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And what I want you to know is here's where everything gets very personal to you and me. You see, all of those names, all those titles, all of that discussion of reversal of fortunes and everything that we've seen there gets very personal because of the very first words of verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Yes, these words were written over 700 years before the birth of Christ. And yes, they were written to a bunch of ancient Israelites who were facing God's judgment. But the message that it conveyed to them is the same message that it conveys to you and to me. You see, Christmas tells us that a child has been born to us. Christmas tells us that a son has been given to us for our benefit. He's been born to reverse our circumstances too because you realize because of sin and because of rebellion in our own life, we stand under the same condemnation the same judgment of the same almighty God that those ancient Israelites faced. But God has sent his son to reverse our circumstances. How has he done it? He's come as a light to shine in the darkness. And listen, he's come not only to be their wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's come to be our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, 
Prince of Peace. And therefore, what this passage reveals to us is that this child whom Isaiah prophesied about, whom the New Testament testifies to, is none other than Jesus Christ. Well, then he is a personal gift from God to us. In fact, I want you to know that's the reason why we share gifts at Christmas. We share gifts at Christmas because in the act of giving someone else a gift, we are reminding ourselves of the greatest gift that was ever given. Not a gift that was wrapped in beautiful wrapping paper and had a nice bow on it, but rather a baby that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. A baby that grew into a man who had a crown of thorns crushed upon his head. A man who was stretched out on a cross and then when he was taken down from that cross was wrapped in a burial shroud and put into a tomb. All of that testifies to us that this is the gift that God has given to us that we celebrate at Christmas and it is the gift of his son. But unfortunately, unfortunately, there will be many this Christmas who will not esteem, they will not appreciate the offer of deliverance and salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ. There will be many who will ignore this gift and they will ignore the one who gives it. It's been happening that way ever since the gift first came. In fact, John says in John chapter 1 verse 11, he came into his own and his own received him not. Isaiah the prophet even knew that this would happen. That's why he wrote about it later in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. He says, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he was despised and we did not esteem him. Unfortunately, Jesus is often treated just like those treasures that Nelson Molina, that veteran New York City garbage man, found thrown away in the trash. Remember what he said? Either these people who threw away all those treasures didn't know the value of the stuff or they didn't want it. This morning, I have come on the eve of Christmas in which we celebrate the birth of God's Son and our Savior. I have come to announce to you the immeasurable, incalculable, priceless gift of the child, Jesus Christ. Based upon what the scriptures reveal to us, Jesus is the greatest gift that has ever been given. I've not only come to announce to you the immense value of this gift, but to tell you just as Isaiah told those ancient Israelites that the gift of God's Son is what will reverse your circumstances. He will replace your gloom with joy. He will bring freedom where there is bondage. He will bring light where there is darkness. He will provide righteous direction to those who have lost their way. He will defeat your ultimate enemy of the devil and death and hell. And he will bring this to pass. And when he does it, he will do it with love and he will protect you and he will provide for you and he will provide what you need more than anything else, whether you realize it or not. He will provide you with peace. He will bring you who have been far away from him near to him, near to God the Father through his blood that he shed on the cross. He has done everything that is necessary for all of those things to take place through his virgin birth, through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, and through his miraculous resurrection. 
Friends and brothers and sisters, then I tell you this morning, there is no greater gift than this. No Christmas gift that you will ever receive this year or in any year before or in any year after will ever be able to transcend this one. The gift of deliverance and salvation that is offered to you in Christ. Because that is the case, let me say to you unequivocally, that you should want this gift more than anything else because you have no greater need than this. That leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning and we'll close. The gift of Christ reverses our circumstances, dispels the darkness and the gloom of our lives brought about by our sin and brings us deliverance and salvation. Because that's the case, brothers and sisters, friends, Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that's ever been given at Christmas. And my prayer is that you will not ignore him and that you will not toss him aside and that you will not fail to recognize the immense value of his gift. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.